Section 26 of Roxana by Daniel Defoe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. First, I seemed to resolve that I would live and settle in England, only with this condition, namely, that I would not live in London. I pretended that it would choke me up, that I wanted breath when I was in London, but that anywhere else I would be satisfied. And then I asked him whether any seaport town in England would not suit him, because I knew, though he seemed to leave off, he would always love to be among business, and conversing with men of business. I named several places, either nearest for business with France or with Holland, as Dover or Southampton for the first, and Ipswich or Yarmouth or Hull for the last. But I took care that we would resolve upon nothing, only by this it seemed to be certain that we should live in England. It was time now to bring things to a conclusion, and so in about six weeks' time we settled all our preliminaries, and among the rest he let me know that he should have the bill for his naturalization past time enough, so that he would be, as he called it, an Englishman before we married. That was soon perfected, the Parliament being then sitting, and several other foreigners joining in the said bill to save the expense. It was not above three or four days after, but that without giving me the least notice that he had so much as been about the patent for baronet, he brought it me in a fine embroidered bag, and saluting me by the name of my lady, joining his own surname to it, presented it to me with his picture set with diamonds, and at the same time gave me a breast jewel worth a thousand pistols, and the next morning we were married. Thus I put an end to all the intriguing part of my life a life full of prosperous wickedness, the reflections upon which were so much the more afflicting as the time had been spent in the grossest crimes, which the more I looked back upon, the more black and horrid they appeared, effectually drinking up all the comfort and satisfaction which I might otherwise have taken in that part of life which was still before me. The first satisfaction, however, that I took in the new condition I was in was in reflecting that at length the life of crime was over and that I was like a passenger coming back from the Indies, who, having after many years' fatigues and hurry in business, gotten a good estate, with innumerable difficulties and hazards, is arrived safe at London with all his effects, and has the pleasure of saying he shall never venture upon the seas any more. When we were married, we came back immediately to my lodgings, where the church was just by, and we were so privately married none but Amy and my friend the Quaker was acquainted with it. As soon as we came into the house, he took me in his arms and kissing me. Now you are my own, says he. Oh, that you had been so good to have done this eleven years ago. Then, said I, you perhaps would have been tired of me long ago. It is much better now, for now all our happy days are to come. Besides, said I, I should not have been half so rich. But that I said to myself, but letting him into the reason of it. Oh, says he, I should not have been tired of you, but besides having the satisfaction of your company, it had saved me that unlucky blow at Paris, which was a dead loss to me of above eight thousand pistoles, and all the fatigues of so many years hurry and business. And then he added, but I'll make you pay for it all, now I have you. I started a little at these words. I said I, do you threaten already? Pray, what do you mean by that? I began to look very grave. 
I'll tell you, says he, very plainly what I mean, and still he had me fast in his arms. I intend from this time never to trouble myself with any more business, so I shall never get one shilling for you more than I have already, or that you will lose one way. Next I intend not to trouble myself with any of the care or trouble of managing what either you have for me or what I have to add to it, but you shall intake it all upon yourself, as the wives do in Holland, so you will pay for it that way too, for all the drudgery shall be yours. Thirdly, I intend to condemn you to the constant bondage of my impertinent company, for I shall tie you like a peddler's pack upon my back. I shall scarce ever be from you. I am sure I can take delight in nothing else in the world. Very well, says I, but I am pretty heavy. I hope you'll sit me down sometimes when you are aweary. As for that, says he, tire me if you can. This was all jest and allegory, but it was all true, and the moral of the fable as you shall hear in its place. We were very merry the rest of the day without any noise or clutter, for he brought not one of his acquaintance or friends, either English or foreigner. The honest Quaker provided us with a very noble dinner indeed, considering how few we were to eat it, and every day that week she did the like, and would at last have it be all at her own charge, which I was utterly averse to, first because I knew her circumstances not to be very great, though not very low, and next because she had been so true a friend, and so cheerful a comforter. To me, I and counsellor too, in all this affair that I had resolved to make her a present that should be some help to her when all was over. But to return to the circumstances of our wedding, after being very merry, as I told you, Amy and the Quaker put us to bed, the honest Quaker little thinking we had been abed together eleven years before. Nay, that was a secret which, as it happened, Amy herself did not know. Amy grinned and made faces as if she had been pleased, but it came out in so many words when he was not by the sum of her mumbling and muttering was that this should have been done ten or a dozen years before, that it would signify little now. That was to say, in short, that her mistress was pretty near fifty and too old to have any children. I chid her. The Quaker laughed, complimented me on my not being so old as Amy pretended, that I could not be above forty, and might have a house full of children yet. But Amy and I, too, knew better than she how it was. For, in short, I was old enough to have done breeding. However, I looked, but I made her hold her tongue. In the morning my Quaker landlady came and visited us before we were up, and made us eat cakes and drink chocolate in bed and then left us again, and bid us take a nap upon it, which I believe we did. In short, she treated us so handsomely, and with such an agreeable cheerfulness as well as plenty, as made it appear to me that Quakers may, and that this Quaker did, understand good manners, as well as any other people. I resisted her offer, however, of treating us for the whole week, and I opposed it so long that I saw evidently that she took it ill, and would have thought herself slighted if we had not accepted it. So I said no more, but let her go on, and he told her I would be even with her, and so I was. However, for that week she treated us as she said she would, and did it so very fine, and with such a profusion of all sorts of good things, that the greatest burden to her was how to dispose of things that were left, for she never let anything, how dainty or however large, be so much as seen twice among us. 
I had some servants indeed, which helped her a little, that is to say, two maids, for Amy was now a woman of business, not a servant, and ate always with us. I had also a coachman and a boy, a Quaker and a manservant too, but had one maid, but she borrowed two more of some of her friends for the occasion, and had a man-cook for dressing the victuals. She was only at a loss for plate, which she gave me a whisper of, and I made Amy fetch a large strong box, which I had lodged in a safe hand, in which was all the fine plate which I provided on a worse occasion, as is mentioned before, and I put it into the Quaker's hand, obliging her not to use it as mine, but as her own, for a reason I shall mention presently was now my lady, and I must own I was exceedingly pleased with it. It was so big and so great to hear myself called her ladyship, and your ladyship, and the like, that I was like the Indian king at Virginia, who, having a house built for him by the English, and a lock put upon the door, would sit whole days together with the key in his hand, locking and unlocking, and double-locking the door, with an unaccountable pleasure at the novelty so I could have sat a whole day together to hear Amy talk to me, and call me your ladyship ere every word, but after a while the novelty wore off, the pride of it abated, till at last truly I wanted the other title as much as I did that of ladyship before. We lived this week in all the innocent mirth imaginable, though a good-humoured Quaker was so pleasant in her way that it was particularly entertaining to us. We had no music at all, or dancing, only I now and then sung a French song to divert my spouse, who desired it, and the privacy of our mirth greatly added to the pleasure of it. I did not make many clothes for my wedding, having always a great many rich clothes by me, which, with a little altering for the fashion, were perfectly new. The next day he pressed me to dress, though we had no company. At last, jesting with him, I told him I believed I was able to dress me so, in one kind of dress that I had by me, that he would not know his wife when he saw her, especially if anybody else was by. No, he said, that was impossible, and he longed to see that dress. I told him I would dress me in it if he would promise me never to desire me to appear in it before company. He promised he would not, but wanted to know why, too, as husbands, you know, are inquisitive creatures, and love to inquire after anything they think is kept from them. But I had an answer ready for him, because, said I, it is not a decent dress in this country, and would not look modest. Neither, indeed, would it, for it was but one degree off from appearing in one shift, but was the usual wear in the country where they were used. He was satisfied with my answer, and gave me his promise never to ask me to be seen in it before company. I then withdrew, taking only Amy and the Quaker with me, and Amy dressed me in my old Turkish habit, which I danced in formerly, etc., as before. The Quaker was charmed with the dress, and merrily said that if such a dress should come to be worn here, she should not know what to do. She should be tempted not to dress in the Quaker's way any more. When all the dress was put on, I loaded it with jewels, and in particular I placed the large breast jewel which she had given me of a thousand pistoles on the front of the tihire, or headdress, where it made a most glorious show indeed. I had my own diamond necklace on, and my hair was tout brilliant, all glittering with jewels. 
his picture set with diamonds i had placed stitched to my vest just as might be supposed upon my heart which is the compliment in such cases among the eastern people and all being open at the breast there is no room for anything of a jewel there in this figure amy holding the train of my robe i came down to him he was surprised and perfectly astonished he knew me to be sure because i had prepared him and because there was nobody else there but the quaker and amy but he by no means knew amy for she had dressed herself in the habit of a turkish slave being the garb of my little turk which i had in naples as i have said she had her neck and arms bare was bare-headed and her hair braided in a long tassel hanging down her back but the jade could neither hold her countenance or her chattering tongue so as to be concealed long well he was so charmed with this dress that he would have me sit and dine in it but it was so thin and so open before and the weather being also sharp that i was afraid of taking old however the fire being enlarged and the doors kept shut i sat to oblige him and he professed he never saw so fine a dress in his life i afterwards told him that my husband so he called the jeweller that was killed bought it for me at leghorn with a young turkish slave which i parted with at paris and that it was by the help of that slave that i learned how to dress in it and how everything was to be worn and many of the turkish customs also with some of their language this story agreeing with the fact only changing the person was very natural and so it went off with him but there was good reason why i should not receive any company in this dress that is to say not in england i need not repeat it you will hear more of it but when i came abroad i frequently put it on and upon two or three occasions danced in it but always at his request we continued at the quaker's lodgings for above a year for now making as though it was difficult to determine where to settle in england to my satisfaction unless in london which was not to mine i pretended to make him an offer that to oblige him i began to incline to go and live abroad with him that i knew nothing could be more agreeable to him and that as to me every place was alike that as i had lived abroad without a husband so many years it could be no burden to me to live abroad again especially with him then we fell to straining our courtesies upon one another he told me he was perfectly easy at living in england and had squared all his affairs accordingly for that as he had told me he intended to give over all business in the world as well the care of managing it as the concern about it seeing we were both in condition neither to want it or to have it be worth our while so i might see it was his intention by his getting himself naturalized and getting a patent of baronet etc well for all that i told him i accepted his compliment but i could not but know that his native country where his children were breeding up must be most agreeable to him and that if i was of such value to him i would be there then to enhance the rate of his satisfaction that wherever he was would be a home to me and any place in the world would be england to me if he was with me and thus in short i brought him to give me leave to oblige him with going to live abroad which in truth i could not have been perfectly easy at living in england unless i had kept constantly within doors lest some time or other the dissolute life i had lived here should have come to be known and all those wicked things have been known too which i now began to be very much ashamed of when we closed up our wedding week 
in which our Quaker had been so very handsome to us, I told him how much I thought we were obliged to her for her gracious carriage to us, how she had acted the kindest part through the whole, and how faithful a friend she had been to me upon all occasions, and then letting him know a little of her family unhappiness, I proposed that I thought I not only ought to be grateful to her, but really to do something extraordinary for her, towards making her and her affairs, and I added that I had no hanger-on that should trouble him, that there was nobody belonged to me but what was thoroughly provided for, and that if I did something for this honest woman that was considerable, it should be the last gift I would give to anybody in the world but Amy, and as for her, we were not a-going to turn her adrift, but whenever anything offered for her we would do, as we saw cause, that in the meantime Amy was not poor, that she had saved together between seven and eight hundred pounds. By the way, I did not tell him how, and by what wicked way she got it, but that she had it, and that was enough to let him know she would never be in want of us. My spouse was exceedingly pleased with my discourse about the Quaker, made a kind of speech to me upon the subject of gratitude, told me it was one of the brightest parts of a gentlewoman that it was so twisted with honesty, nay, and even with religion too, that he questioned whether either of them could be found where gratitude was not to be found, that in this act there was not only gratitude but charity, and that to make the charity still more Christian-like, the object too had real merit to attract it. He therefore agreed to the thing with all his heart, and he would have had me let him pay it out of his effects. I told him as for that I did not design whatever I had said formerly, that we should have two pockets, and that though I had talked to him of being a free woman, and an independent and the like, and he had offered and promised that I should keep all my own estate in my own hands, yet that since I had taken him, I would e'en do as other honest wives do. I thought fit to give myself, I should give what I had, too, that if I resolved anything, it should be only in case of mortality, and that I might give it to his children afterwards, as my own gift, and that, in short, if he thought fit to join stocks, we would see to-morrow morning what strength we could both make up in the world, and bringing it all together, consider before we resolved upon the place of removing how we should dispose of what we had, as well as of ourselves. This discourse was too obliging, and he too much of a man of sense not to receive it as it was meant. He only answered we would do in that as we should both agree, but the thing under our present care was to show not gratitude only, but charity and affection too, to our kind friend the Quaker, and the first word he spoke of was to settle a thousand pounds upon her for her life, that was to say sixty pounds a year, but in such a manner as not to be in the power of any person to reach but herself. This was a great thing, and indeed showed the generous principles of my husband. And for that reason I mention it, but I thought that a little too much too, and particularly because I had another thing in view for her about the plate. So I told him I thought if, if he gave her a purse with a hundred guineas as a present first, then made her a compliment of forty pounds for per annum, for her life, secured any such way as she should desire, it would be very handsome. He agreed to that, and the same day in the evening when we were just going to bed, he took my Quaker by the hand and with a kiss told her that... We had been very kindly treated by her from the beginning of this affair, and his wife before, she meaning me, had informed him, and that he thought himself bound to let her see that she had obliged friends who knew how to be grateful. 
that for his part of the obligation, he desired she would accept of that for an acknowledgment in part only, putting the gold into her hand, and that his wife would talk with her about what further he had to say to her. Upon that, not giving her time hardly to say thank ye, away he went upstairs into our bedchamber, leaving her confused and not knowing what to say. When he was gone, she began to make very handsome and obliging representations of her good will to us both, but that it was without expectation of reward. That I had given her several valuable presents before, and so indeed I had, but besides the piece of linen which I had given her at first, I had given her a suit of damask table linen of the linen I bought for my balls, vis-à-vis -vis three tablecloths and three dozen of napkins, and at another time I gave her a little necklace of gold beads and the like, but that is by the way, but she mentioned them, I say, and how she was obliged by me on many other occasions, that she was not in condition to show her gratitude any other way, not being able to make a suitable return and that now we took from her all opportunity to balance my former friendship, and left her more in debt than she was before. She spoke this in a very good kind of manner, in her own way, but which was very agreeable indeed, and had as much apparent sincerity, and I verily believe as real as was possible to be expressed. But I put a stop to it, and bade her say no more, but except of what my spouse had given her, which was but in part, as she had heard him say. And put it up, says I, and come and sit down here and give me leave to say something else to you on the same head, which my spouse and I have settled between ourselves in your behalf. What dost thou mean? says she, blushed and looked surprised, but did not stir. She was going to speak again, but I interrupted her and told her she should make no more apologies of any kind whatever, for I had better things than all this to talk of her. So I went on and told her that as she had been so friendly and kind to us on every occasion, and that her house was the lucky place where we came together, and that she knew I was from her own mouth, acquainted in part with her circumstances, we were resolved she should be the better for us as long as she lived. Then I told her what we had resolved to do for her, and that she had nothing more to do but to consult with me how it should be effectually secured for her, distinct from any of the effects which were her husband's and that if her husband did so supply her that she could live comfortably, and not want it for bread or other necessaries, she should not make use of it, but lay up the income of it and add it every year to the principal, so to increase the annual payment, which in time, and perhaps before she might come to want it, might double itself. That we were very willing whatever she should so lay up should be to herself, and whoever she thought fit after her that the forty pounds a year must return to her family after her life, which we both wished might be long and happy. Let no reader wonder at my extraordinary concern for this poor woman, or at my giving my bounty to her a place in this account. It is not, I assure you, to make a pageantry of my charity, or to value her myself upon the greatness of my soul, that should give in so profuse a manner as this which was above my figure if my wealth had been twice as much as it was, but there was another spring from whence all flowed, and tis on that account I speak of it. Was it possible I could think of a poor desolate woman with four children, and her husband gone from her, and perhaps good for little if he had stayed? I say was I that had tasted so deep of the sorrows of such a kind of widowhood, 
able to look on her and think of her circumstances, and not be untouched in an uncommon manner. No, no, I never looked on her and her family, though she was not left so helpless and friendless as I had been, without remembering my own condition. When Amy was sent out to pawn, or sell my pair of stays to buy a breast of mutton and a bunch of turnips, nor could I look on her poor children, though not poor and perishing like mine, without tears, reflecting on the dreadful condition that mine were reduced to, when poor Amy sent them all their aunts and spitalfields and run away with them. These were the original springs or fountainhead from whence my affectionate thoughts were moved to assist this poor woman. When a poor debtor, having lain long in the Compter or Ludgate or the King's Bench for debt, afterwards gets out, rises again in the world, and grows rich, such a one is a certain benefactor to the prisoners there, and perhaps to every prisoner who passes by as long as he lives, for he remembers the dark days of his own sorrow, and even those who never had the experience of such sorrows to stir up their minds to acts of charity would have the same charitable good disposition did they sensibly remember what it is that distinguishes them from others by a more favourable and merciful providence. This, I say, was, however, the spring of my concern for this honest, friendly, and grateful Quaker. As I had so plentiful a fortune in the world, I resolved she should taste the fruit of her kind usage to me in a manner that she could not expect. All the while I talked to her, I saw the disorder of her mind, the sudden joy was too much for her, and she coloured, trembled, changed, and at last grew pale, and was indeed near fainting, when she hastily rung a little bell for her maid, who coming in immediately, she beckoned to her, for speak she could not, to fill her a glass of wine, but she had no breath to take it in, and was almost choked with that which she took in her mouth. I saw she was ill, and assisted her what I could, and with spirits and things to smell, to just kept her from fainting, when she beckoned to her maid to withdraw, and immediately burst out in crying, and that relieved her. When she recovered herself a little, she flew to me, and throwing her arms about my neck, Oh, says she, thou hast almost killed me, and there she hung, laying her head in my neck for half a quarter of an hour, not able to speak, but sobbing like a child that had been whipped. I was very sorry that it did not stop a little in the middle of my discourse and make her drink a glass of wine before it had put her spirits into such a violent motion. But it was too late, and it was ten to one odds that it had killed her. But she came to herself at last and began to say some very good things in return for my kindness. I would not let her go on, but told her I had more to say to her still than all this, but that I would let it alone till another time. My meaning was about the box of plate, a good part of which I gave her, and some I gave to Amy, for I had so much plate, and some so large, that I thought if I let my husband see it, he might be apt to wonder what occasion I could ever have for so much, and for plate of such a kind, too. It's particularly a great cistern for bottles, which cost a hundred and twenty pounds, and some large candlesticks too big for any ordinary use. These I caused Amy to sell. In short, Amy sold above three hundred pounds worth of plate. What I gave the Quaker was worth above sixty pounds, and I gave Amy above thirty pounds worth, and yet I had a great deal left for my husband. Nor did our kindness to the Quaker end with the forty pounds a year. 
for we were always, while we stayed with her, it was above ten months giving her one good thing or another, and in a word, instead of lodging with her, she boarded with us, for I kept the house, and she and all her family ate and drank with us, and yet we paid her the rent of the house too. In short, I remembered my widowhood, and I made this widow's heart glad, many a day the more upon that account. End of section 26